This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Today's scripture reading is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is God's word. The theme that soars above and beyond this text is the theme of Jesus' kingship. Jesus riding into Jerusalem is a royal procession. And what's interesting about the story is that every human character has a particular response to Jesus. Every human character has a particular response to Jesus. And collectively, they piece together a complete picture of what it looks like to crown Jesus king. Now, one of the things that the gospels in particular show us is that you can't really know Jesus Christ unless you know him as king. He can't change your life. He can't transform your life. He can't come into your life unless you understand him as king so the human stories, the human characters in this story collectively piece together a picture of what it looks like to crown Jesus king. And the simple question that comes at us through the story is, have you done that? Have you crowned Jesus king? There are three ideas we need to embody in our lives if we're truly going to crown Jesus king. Here they are. We're gonna need to limit the whining, whining, Yours, mine, and ours, or just Jesus's. And ain't no rock gonna take my place. Now, I'm not sure how it is that I ended up with um, Jeopardy categories for the sermon points, but alas, there they are, and it's time to preach, so here we go. Number one, limit the whining. Now, Jesus has just finished a parable. He's finished teaching. Immediately, he pivots 
to telling two of his disciples to go fetch a colt. And he spells out exactly what's going to happen, how things will be, and what they should say. Now, how these two disciples respond contributes to the picture of what it looks like to respond to Jesus as king. Jesus sent, they went. Jesus sent, they went. Without protest and without demand for an explanation. Jesus tells them what they're to do. He tells them what they're to say and they do as they're told and they say what they're told to say. This is a picture of obedience to Jesus as king. Now, because some of our hobbies and recreational activities have been restricted these days, this is an opportune time to read through the scriptures. Start with one of the gospels, maybe Luke. Read straight through it. Pause once in a while and ask yourself a couple of very simple questions. Do I believe this? And do I really obey this? Do I really believe this? And do I really obey this? And by asking yourself these questions, you're gonna see whether or not you yourself have crowned Jesus king. So let's do that as an example with with a few passages. Luke chapter six, verse 27, Jesus is speaking. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Now, when we read a verse like this, our automatic response is to look for the loopholes first. (laughs) Love my enemies, but what about this person? What about that person? Does it really apply in this situation? Don't go there. Don't put the king on trial with you serving as prosecuting attorney. Believe what he says, do what you're told. Luke chapter 12, verses six and seven. Again, Jesus is speaking. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Look, this command is not to fear. First of all, is a command, but it's not only that, it's a blanket command. There's nothing in the context in these verses that would restrict its application. Jesus is saying there is never a good reason to be afraid because even the things of exponentially lesser value like sparrows are never forgotten. If they're not forgotten, how much more will God's care for you be? Do you believe that? Do you live out of that? How about one more? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity is exclusive and we ought not make apologies for that. Jesus doesn't. And Christianity isn't exclusive because Christians somewhere conspired to make it so. Jesus actually beat us to the punch. Jesus is the one saying he is the only way to gain access to the dwelling place of the infinite God. Do you believe that? Do you take Jesus at his word? If you want to see evidence of Jesus' kingship in your life, you should be able to say this. I believe because Jesus said so, not because it makes sense to me. I believe because Jesus said it and that's all the proof I need. That's when you know Jesus is king. See, it's not understanding seeking faith. It's faith seeking understanding. When we disbelieve or disobey because something doesn't make sense to us, we're actually making ourselves the final arbiter of truth and we end up putting ourselves in a precarious position because we're now making Jesus pass our sniff test. 
So one piece of evidence that Jesus is truly king in your life is you believe because Jesus said it in here. You obey because Jesus told you to obey in here. When that's your modus operandi, you know you're functioning as a subject to the king of the cosmos. Let me try to illustrate this. When our kids were young, and to a degree we still do this, but when they were younger in particular and we asked them to do something, we were occasionally responded to with a why question. (laughs) Why should I do that? And my wife and I had determined that at that point in our parenting, we were not going to explain why. We were not going to explain the reason for the command or the exhortation. So we would respond by saying, well, Braylon, I want you to do that because I'm your father. Or I'm your mother. This is, this is why I want you to do this, because I'm your father, because I'm your mother. In other words, obedience was predicated on the nature of the, their relationship to us, child to parent. It was not based on their intellectual approval of the rationale. Because if you only obey me because you understand why I'm telling you to do this, then that's not really obedience, that's agreement. By the way, parents, as a brief aside, if kids are only ever to taught, taught to obey something, if the rationale makes sense, they're going to have a difficult time obeying the Lord throughout the course of a lifetime. Because there will be countless occasions where God asks us to do something, the rationale of which is far beyond our cognitive powers to comprehend. If you obey the Lord only when it makes sense, he's not really your king, he's your consultant. Our obedience to the Lord is first predicated on the nature of our relationship to him, creature to creator. So don't subject the king of the cosmos to your sniff test. I believe because Jesus said so, not because it makes sense to me. I obey because Jesus said so, not because it makes sense to me. That's one piece of evidence that you've crowned Jesus king. Second, yours, mine, and ours, or just Jesus's. So Jesus sends two of his disciples into a neighboring village to retrieve a colt. He explains ahead of time everything that's going to happen and everything that, that they should say. And of course, it unfolds to the detail exactly how Jesus said it would. This is his omniscience on display. It's a mark of his king, uh, kingship. Well, they arrive in town. They begin untying the colt. And the owners, notice the plural, owners, um, have some mild objections to this. And that's understandable. Well, hey, what are you doing with our colt? You can't just come in here and take it. Now, let's pause here for a minute because I think they've got a point. Right? Conventional wisdom would say they've got a point. (laughs) Imagine two strangers walking into your garage and proceeding to take your car. Are you not going to speak up and say something? Hey, what are you doing? The two disciples walk onto the property of complete strangers and proceed to untie their colt and haul it off for use in a parade. And the kicker is that Jesus is the mastermind behind it. The disciples are now accomplices in what amounts to grand theft auto. What's the deal? Well, the answer is seen in how Jesus told the disciples to respond to the cult's owners. The Lord has need of it. In the original language, it could be translated, its Lord has need of it. Where are you going with our cult? Its Lord has need of it. Jesus can't steal something that already belongs to him. 
He can't steal something he's already Lord over. Now the cult is what we would call personal property or private property, but that terminology gives way to a faulty view of money and possessions. Think about the cults you have in your life. Your house, your car, your savings accounts, your stuff, your retirement portfolio. Who is its Lord? So let's think about the loss of things like this because that's what's happened to the owners of the cult. This teaching does remarkable things. It gives you tremendous resources for dealing with loss because it enables you to look at loss of personal property differently. Instead of saying, I lost my job or I lost my house or I lost my money, you can say, its Lord has need of it. When Jesus is truly the owner of all you have, loss is never a waste. Its Lord has need of it. And when Jesus is truly the owner of all you have, there's a limit to how much pain the loss of those things can inflict. Now to the owners of the cult, their loss did not come directly from Jesus. Jesus was not the one who walked into town, untie the cult and haul it off. Jesus did not do that. The owners lost their cult through a secondary agent, the two disciples. Now, based on appearances, the owners could say, we lost our cult due to two strange men who walked onto our property and took what we had. But the scriptures, again, plunge us past appearances down into the reality. Who they think is behind this, the two disciples, are not really behind this. It's Jesus from the start. So instead of saying, I lost all I had because the economy tanked, the economy is a secondary agent. You can say something different. Behind the economy, there is an owner. There's an owner of all I had and he has need of it. This is a way we crown Jesus king. There's an open-handedness with all of our cults. This is a way I live as a subject under the authority of the king of the cosmos. Now, it would be understandable uh, for the owner or us as perceived owners to say, well, its owner has need of it, but for what? <laughs> for what? For what? For what? But the moment we've asked that question, we're back at point number one. We're asking for rationale. We're basing our obedience on, on it making sense, and we've turned Jesus into a consultant. The owners of the cult do not ask why. They don't ask why. There's no whining. In other words, you don't need to know. Its Lord has need of it. The Lord of all your cults has need of it. Why? You don't need to know why. The only thing you need to know is that the owner of your cult has need of it. And the degree of open-handedness you have is an indicator of the degree to which you've crowned Jesus king. Third, ain't no rock gonna take my place. The third group of people who help us uh, put together a picture of what it looks like to crown Jesus king are the multitudes who gather for Jesus' royal procession. Now, as a brief aside, this group of people are badly mistaken about what Jesus has come to do. They think he's the king, the Messiah who has come in to overthrow Roman rule 
and to restore the empire, the nation of Israel. That's what they think. They think he's the one who's come to do that, but they're badly mistaken about that. But just because they're wrong about Jesus' mission, just because they're wrong about the nature of Jesus' mission, doesn't mean their response to him is wrong. In fact, Jesus endorses and affirms that their response is the right one. When he says, if these people don't cry out like this, the stones will cry out. So he's endorsing their response. Verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Here is the third picture of the way we crown Jesus king by rejoicing in and praising him. Rejoicing in and praising him. I've tried to hammer this point home in previous messages. C.S. Lewis has a helpful way of describing the weightiness of praise. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he writes this. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you cared for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. In other words, the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Rejoicing in and praising Jesus Christ is delight manifested. Now look, intuitively, this is something we already know. You already rejoice over the things in your life you've crowned king. You already do this. You already rejoice over the things in your life you've crowned king. We do that naturally. See, if you crown professional accomplishment king, you rejoice over the promotions and the pay raises and the objectives completed. If you crown physical beauty king, you rejoice over the lost weight, the reduced wrinkles, and anything that accentuates the physical features you find most laudable. If you crown human approval king, you rejoice over compliments. If you crown control king, you rejoice over people and situations that obey your word. We naturally rejoice over and praise that which we have crowned king in our lives. The Archbishop in the Anglican Church of Canterbury, uh, William Temple, back in the 1940s, said this. He said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. What he's saying is that when you don't have anything else to think about, if you're standing on a street corner, you've got no smartphone, no one to talk to, nothing to do, nowhere to be, alone with your thoughts, what do you think about? What do you like thinking about? Where does your mind go? What do you daydream about? Whatever that is, is functioning as your king. 
So if you lose a job or you lose a relationship and yet you spend your time daydreaming about the beauty and the greatness of Jesus, you know how to pray, you know how to meditate on him, you know how to sing his praises, you know how to worship him. When you lose that job or that relationship, it'll be tough, but it won't be the end of the world. When Jesus endorses the response of the people, that that responding to him with rejoicing and praising is the appropriate response to him as king, he is not advocating for a perfunctory church activity. He's not advocating for that. He's advocating for something much more, much more comprehensive, deeper. When Jesus endorses the activity of the multitude, which is to rejoice in and praise him, Jesus is saying, you've crowned me king when you daydream about me. You've crowned me king when I'm the subject and object of your solitude. You've crowned me king when an objective observer could charge you with being obsessed with me. Now, a question you might ask yourself is, well, how do I grow in that? How do I grow in that? How do I grow in delighting in Jesus, not just going through the motions of a perfunctory activity? How do I truly grow in making Jesus the object and subject of my solitude? Well, we're about to participate in an ordinance of the church, the Lord's Supper. Jesus did not institute this just so we would engage in some kind of cognitive recognition every once in a while. The Lord's Supper is a physical activity. It's a tangible activity that creates sensations, pleasurable sensations, taste, sweetness. The Lord's Supper is meant to fuel our imaginations. It's actually meant to help us grow in our wonder for what Christ has done and simultaneously for us to delight in, quite literally delight in, all that Christ has done. Ravi Zacharias is a helpful way of illustrating this. He writes, if I were telling my children the same fairy tale, notice the different reactions. If I took Sarah at age eight and said to her, Sarah, little Tommy got up and walked to the door and opened the door and a dragon jumped in front of Tommy. Sarah's eyes would go wide. But now imagine me telling little Naomi, age four, the same story. Naomi, little Tommy got up, walked to the door and opened the door. Naomi's eyes go wide. Now let's imagine I tell a story to Nathan, age two, whose entire worldview is exhausted in one word, cookie. All I have to say is, Nathan, little Tommy got up and walked to the door. And Nathan's eyes get wide with amazement. You see the difference? Writes, Zacharias, Sarah needed the dragon. Naomi needed to open the door. For Nathan, it was a pretty big deal to walk up to the door. The older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder. And only Jesus Christ is big enough to fill it. So as the worship team leads us in this next song, let's ask the Lord 
to use the time remaining to enlarge our hearts with wonder for Jesus Christ. And that that wonder would prompt our delight in him, the king of the cosmos. Let's pray. Jesus, your power is unfathomable. Your value immeasurable. Your purpose is unthwartable. There is only one way human history is going to go and that is whatever way you want it to go. And so we say with Peter, to whom shall we run? For you alone have the words of eternal life. You've given us a picture from these verses of what it looks like to crown you king. We want to be that people who do so with precision and passion. And as we prepare for the table now, I pray that you'd fill our minds and hearts and imaginations with wonder for you that we may live faithfully under the rule of you, the cosmic king. In whose name we pray, amen.